and welcome to the Home Lab Show. This is episode 46, Dev Q&A. We had a lot of questions. Uh, well, you had a lot of questions. We had a few questions of our own. Me and yep. Jay, we probably should have hit record when me and Jay were just talking about SSH keys now that I think about it. So Yeah, because we, we can always edit that out of the one that goes out to the podcast networks. And then the people that are streaming live could just hear us ramble on and on about, you know, whatever the heck we're rambling on about. Yeah. Might be fun for some people. Yeah, we, we uh, dove a little bit into the topic of SSH key management, and there's there's always challenges around it. So uh, it's going to be a future thing where me and Jay dive deeper into it as an instructional tutorial video. Um, but let's get into this show here. And mm -hmm. this is a Q&A episode. But first, the question is, who's sponsoring the show? And I believe that's Linode today. Well, I'm yep. pretty confident. I got an email from them. They are still sponsoring the show as of right now. <laughs> so everybody yep. knows. I know someone is asked us uh, and we don't have any inside information about right. the acquisitions and things like that. So that's as much as we don't know anything or we'd love to share information if we could. But yep. speaking of the sponsor, Linode, if you want to talk about some of these projects or you need a place to do some of these projects, but it's not in your lab because you need it pushed out to a public IP address, Linode is a great place for that. And if you're listening to this podcast, you downloaded it on whatever podcast app, it was pulled from Linode because that's where we actually have the server hosted, the WordPress hosted. We stick the files up there so you can download them, get the RSS feed, however you want to acquire this podcast. We try to make this really easy for people that go, I don't even like to use a phone or anything like that. I'm too privacy oriented for these phones and yep. I just download it. We we try to cater to everybody on that. Uh, Linode has been a great partner to work with. They've been a great place to host projects. They're extremely dev friendly. This is one of the things that makes them great with all kinds of flexibility and options and lots of predefined scripts. So as we go through the podcast, you want to try out some of the things we talk about. We talk about quite a few of them that are completely available for just a quick click install of notes. You can start play with them, get them up and running fast. And then of course, tear them down and build them from scratch. So you can do all the learning yourself because that's where the fun begins. And if yep. you'd like to do that with the node, we have an offer code of home lab show. So head over to Lenode.com slash home lab show and sign up. If you're interested in using it, uh, it's a great service. We highly recommend it and we actually use it. So it's not just like a sponsorship thing. We were using it before. We're happy them to sponsor it. Uh, we'd still say nice things about them if they didn't sponsor for us, you know, but I, I shouldn't yep. say that in case they listen. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they've been great. And yeah. I've been using them before they were even a sponsor of anything. So it's like when they asked me, do you want to, you want us to sponsor? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've been using it. I'm already familiar. I don't have to do any research. So yep. it's always great when you have a sponsor, you don't even have to read anything to find out about them. If you already know. Yeah. When they offered, we're like, yeah, we, we like this product. So thumbs up to them. Yep. All right. Let's uh, jump into the Q and a, but first, because we talked about YubiKeys last time, I will mention yeah. since that I have made a video and I can leave it in the comments, but it's easy enough to find on my channel. I mentioned Jay had a video talking about how to set up YubiKeys. And I understand now some of the comments that people had had. And I want to do some clarification of aren't there more than one way to set this up? And there sure is. There's right. nothing wrong at all with the way Jay did it. There's nothing wrong with the wall way Tom did it. But because there are different methodologies, I broke down one of the other methodologies. So Jay has the ones where you, in, Jay goes further than I do in my video because he explains how to set it up for uh, some of your uh, GNOME login mm -hmm. and uh, a couple different ways of managing it. But I specifically, because people had asked during our last episode, hoping we dive deeper into FIDO U2F, I did a FIDO U2F key video with these. And that's actually what brought up the SSH key management questions of how do you handle multiple ED2519 keys? Because when you use FIDO, you end up with an ED2519 underscore SK key. And there's some logic in the SSH copy ID that won't copy both keys on there. So that might be a later show topic to dive into that. I mean, easily you can copy them manually by typing typing SSH copy ID dash I and specifying each key. You could create a config file, an identity file, but that's what took me and Jay so much time to discuss because there's like more than one answer and they're both correct. It comes down to your methodology. And Jay actually had a clever one of, you know, unencrypting, re-encrypting public key files, but that would bring us probably way off topic. Yeah, it's just like, there's always a workaround and some kind of crazy Kung Fu command line stuff that gets you through certain things. But then you start to wonder if you're over-architecting the solution. Yeah. But sometimes it's cool to do so though. That's why we have home lab people because we love to over-architect the heck out of things, so. 
it is such a fun learning opportunity. I, you know, I truly enjoyed the reading I had to do. And even some of the RSA, uh, there's an RSA presentation, actually a lot of them you can find, they're all on YouTube, they're free. You can watch them and there's specifically one on FIDO-U2F. So they cover the entire breadth of everything FIDO-U2F can do. I narrowed it down specifically to FIDO-U2F YubiKey. And it's just fun doing these deep dives in technology with stuff. That's, mm -hmm. well, that's why I think you're here as an audience. And that's also why we're here to like have a big game of show and tell. <laughs> pretty much what we do for a living, right? It, it's a uh, technology show and tell basically it's a great way to describe what we do sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure but we have people who sent questions and we'd love to answer those questions so um without further ado where should we start well i just want to i mean i could start with a quick one i mean i don't really have much in the way of answers but i do want to address this because i think this is something that most or not most people but a lot of people want to know about and it's one of those things i want to dive deeper into um and that was a question about, um, you know, core boot as a BIOS option, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, why would you prefer one over the other? So one thing I'll say first and foremost is that open source, I always prefer first unless I find a reason not to. For example, um, I'll try an open source solution. If it doesn't work or it doesn't fit my use case, then I'll go a different direction. But I always consider open source first. So when it comes to core boot, I'm pretty much just going to consider that by default. Now I have uh, I have a few systems with Core Boot, and I have several systems without it, and I don't really notice a difference between them, um, other than the implementation of Core Boot. And this is interesting, and I don't really know why this is yet. There's no options. There's no BIOS screen in, in this Core Boot implementation that I use. It's just it boots, right? You could choose. You could press a key to boot to a different device if you want to, you know, wipe your OS or something like that. But there's no options. Like virtualization is already enabled. And there's pretty much same defaults. I don't know if that's normal or if that's the implementation from System76. I like configuration screens, but I don't know if that's typical of Core Boot. But I would say if you can get Core Boot, that's great. If not, um, it really matters. I mean, it doesn't really matter unless it matters to you because with Intel, there's security issues. There's privacy concerns with some of the blobs that are in there. And whether or not that matters to you, well, I mean, does it matter to you? I don't know. It does it. So I guess that's the big question there. Um, I think it's a matter of um, politics or um, I don't know if there's any individual that's going to be a target of a hack because they have non-open source BIOS. I don't really think, you know, unless you're, you know, dimming the power grid with your home lab, I really <laughs> don't think anybody is really going to care what you're running. And especially if you follow our advice and you don't make your systems publicly available anyway. Um, you could argue, um, you know, lateral movement might be a problem, but it's probably not going to be concerned, but it's just a matter of your personal beliefs. I always try to look for open source first. And if that open source solution fails me, I'll try another open source solution. And if none exists, then I go a different direction. But um, Core Boot has been one of those things that um, has served me very well. But the bigger problem is at the end of the day, it's not really much of a choice, is it? Because do you have the means to reflash the BIOS with Core Boot? You might. You might also brick the motherboard. Um, you might also have to get some hardware. I forgot what that's called. We have those little clamps that clamp onto the um Oh, yeah, yeah, where you use the tag and reflash it. and <laughs> Yeah. I mean, if you could do that, that's great. But sometimes that's required because I remember one time a ThinkPad model that I have was actually listed for Core Boot support. I'm like, well, that'll make a really cool video. How about I just install that and see what happens? Then I read the instructions. It's like I have to actually connect some cables and, and do this and, and expose the motherboard. And just have, I'm like, I, I don't want to do that. I mean, I can do that, but is it worth it? Probably not because the average person isn't going to do that because usually core boot is not going to be very easy to just drop in, replace unless the vendor does that. And System76 has done that. They've taken... A, um, a laptop I have that has proprietary BIOS on it. And they've engineered a core boot update to where it just firmware updates into core boot. Like it's not even like a process at all. You just do the over the air, I forgot what it's called, like the FW update command. And oh, yeah. it just goes to the next version of the firmware, which System76 just made it the core boot version. And then everyone gets core boot. Um, that's great if a vendor does that. But if it doesn't support core, you know, core boot out of the box, 
then I would argue there's probably going to be some kind of a um, some command line kung fu or some kind of physical um, contraption you have to make in order to get that on there. So, yeah, it's really um, definitely tricky because it's yeah. such a small niche of things to support it. Cool if we're moving more that way. I, it's obviously I'm a huge advocate of open source, and I'm hoping we all move that way. But it's just not realistic or available to a lot of these systems. Right. I, I hope that Corvo just becomes so popular that it's, you know, everywhere. That'd be great. You know, if it yeah. becomes a standard, even better. That'd be awesome. Yep. Um, so this is an interesting one. And someone has a uh, use case or edge case here where they live in an apartment and I guess they have some computers in their garage. Now, what they're worried about is someone tapping a line. How do you deal with the data transmission that goes across right. the line? If you're physically networking it between two locations, but there is some middle area where someone could physically get access to it. Obviously this creates some huge issues and could someone potentially now the statistic likelihood we're really extrapolating here because the likelihood is someone will see a network cable and not just do something dumb, like cut it and actually tap into it. Really, really unlikely. You can though set up a port tap on here. Um, ways you could try to mitigate it. It would be like, you know, you could do some uh, locking of Mac addresses or port locking. Uh, that might help. Honestly, though, if you, the worry that this person had was, should I encrypt everything on there? Honestly, the it's not much of a risk factor. We'll just throw that out there. This is right, a real right. edge case that you think someone's going to stop in, split the wire, put a tap on there. Um, and listen, I mean, possible, yes. Plausible, mm -hmm. not as much. But what you can do is just make sure everything's encrypted as much as possible. This is good security practice in general. This is even when you're doing things like having local data moving back and forth, can you go a level deeper and encrypt it? Most of the time, the answer is yes. Even if you're using self-signed certificates internally, that's fine because even a self-signed certificate is encrypted. Now, of course, if you are using self-signed certificates, there's the potential that this person then could manipulate the data. So you're back to kind of square one. Could you go further and wrap your tinfoil hat really, really tight and set up VPNs between each device? possible but now i think you've gone over the top with it but i brought this question up uh because it's kind of i think a lot of people when they are getting into computers they don't always look at the threat modeling starting by the most plausible things they sometimes right. start looking at all the edge cases around there i've i frequently just for consulting we do we find people who start focusing on things like that but what the reality is you really need to look at the most likely most plausible things first and once you have all of those, you know, all the other things like how your different protection levels work. Do you have good passwords? Do you have 2FA turned on things? All those things are things you need to focus on because it's just the likelihood of you having something. And it's just unlikely someone's going to, most people see a wire and do something malicious. Like I'm going to cut this wire because it will anger someone and I'm a vandal. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, I think, I think one point to consider here, I think this is basically the same as what you're saying is that um, if you focus on something that's not likely to happen and that's what you focus on, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't necessarily focus on it because you might want to learn the security of improving that because that'll transfer over to a company. But what are the odds that, that someone's going to actually do that? And what's worse is you could be neglecting a more likely scenario. I mean, maybe you have a password while a, it's a good password, perhaps, Maybe somehow it leaked out into all the tables out there um, and someone could, you know, get into your server from the outside via a remote connection. So at that point, what's more likely someone to tap your line or someone to use that vulnerability or that that easy password? Because let's just face it, if something is publicly available, the whole world is trying to get into it. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a bigger problem. So that's what you should focus on. But then if you're looking at is someone going to tap my wires? Well, think about it like this. In my office here, if um, someone wants to, if, if someone breaks in, already all bets are off. If they want to just get a hammer and just bash my equipment, they can do that if they have physical access. So once someone has physical access, all bets are off. If something is exposed to someone, like I said, they can cut the wire. But in all, all honesty, if someone breaks into this studio, they're probably going to grab the PlayStation 5. They're going to grab the laptop. And that, that's what they're going to go after. That thing with all the blinking lights, they don't know what to do with that. Um, chances are, if you have, I mean, you're probably not that kind of person, I would hope, if you have a career in IT where you know how to properly dismantle a server and steal the servers. <laughs> but 
in all honesty, they're, they, people want to get in and get out. They're going to grab your PlayStation. They're going to grab your Xbox, whatever you have, your laptop, your computer, and then they're going to be out the door. Um, so if someone has phys- you know, physical access to my ports, I mean, I do disable all the ports that aren't used. It's just habit, honestly. But is somebody going to break in and the first thing they're going to do is hook a laptop up to my Switch? Probably not. The PlayStation 5 is right on the way into the data closet. So the first thing they're going to see is that game system and a 4K TV. And then, you know, it just you're just kind of focusing on the wrong thing here. And if it's a shared garage, like you said, they'll cut the cables. So you probably just want to make mm-hmm. sure there's some kind of conduit or something that the cables are in, some kind of metal thing to where it's harder for them to break in. They yeah. have to be a little bit more determined. So just work, like you said, with the most likely to happen and then work your way down from there. Exactly. You know, it's kind of a little bit on this topic is we had a unmanaged business who hated the cloud. The cloud is a scary place for someone can steal your data, but they own their big business with three separate locations. So we set up a VPN and did the data redundancy across the locations. Then their internal IT person, after we got the VPN up and running at some later point, we don't know, they're not a managed client opened up his QNAP where all the data was destined to. And uh, if you've watched my recent video on QNAP, you know that QNAPs have been the target of a lot of ransomware. So his opened up QNAP got ransomware. So the threat modeling of I'm afraid of the cloud, they decided to open ports up instead of using a site to say, yeah, the site to site VPN between the locations, but they wanted easy external access and didn't bother calling us to help them configure another VPN. So they just started port forwarding things. So once Uh again, risk modeling, they were scared of the cloud and then opened up ports on a local machine thinking they're too small to be attacked. That was kind of the attitude they took. And I said, well, this is not recommended. And uh, then they called us because they want to know how to get ransomware off a QNAP. And I'm like, well, there's the good news is the Bitcoin amount was hard coded. So Bitcoin took a drop so you can pay less money now. <laughs> the most hilarious things in this industry happen when someone thinks they know security. And yes. let's be honest, we know, none of us know security, right? I mean, we could know enough about it to secure things. But uh, I mean, even the most you know extreme security person, and there's going to be things even that person doesn't know because it's like a endless thing. There's just no shortage of things to know. But yeah. then you have some hilarious things that happen. Like I remember when this was quite a while back, but it stands out when Firefox started to show this warning when your logins aren't encrypted. Like if you go to put your mouse cursor into a username field and it's not a you know a TLS site, it's going to let you know that oh, yeah. this site isn't encrypted. And then someone submitted a bug report to uh, Mozilla directly. Like, I don't appreciate this. I can't remember how it went, but I don't appreciate this. My, I know my site is secure despite this message. I need you guys like to fix this because it's just <laughs> like causing all kinds of problems. And he kept demanding his site was secure. And it got to a point where, and I don't, you know, advocate this, someone that's following the comments literally hacked his site. And then in the comments said, well, by the way, I hacked your site and I broke right in, had no problem. So yeah, you're really not all that secure. So (laughs) you're just proving the point that we really do need this warning on there. Yeah. Oh my God. I love it. So much fun. Now, this is an interesting one here. And there's actually a lot of tools out there to do this, but let's go with some of the basics. I'm not This is not a full guide, but someone says, I've been considering starting a WISP or wireless ISP in my area to provide better internet connectivity at a better price option that are currently available. Given your collective experience, how would you go about this? Where should I start? Well, one, don't just go with the plan. And this is a business plan thing. Don't start with a plan. I'm just going to do it for cheaper because that's not always a rational way to start a plan like that. I do know from my experience of working with WISP in rural areas, they don't often work on high margins despite, you know, paying quite a bit. I I know from the people that provide internet to where my dad lives in a very rural part of Michigan, um, it sounds expensive because it is. It's like $130 a month for very slow internet. But they're the only option and someone say, well, they're probably price gouging. Actually, um, they face a lot of expenses keeping up all these towers with a low density area. So the first question is, is it a profitable venture? Can you do it? And is there a backhaul provider? So if there's an existing WISP, there probably is a backhaul provider, but that's an important factor if you're going to divvy up the internet, because sometimes people contact us, go, hey, I have one gig internet. I'd like to sell one gig internet to everybody. Well, technically you're not. Everything comes down to a fraction after that. So make sure you do the math properly. Make sure you understand how much the backhaul is going to cost to get it there. Then you can look at things like there's two big companies in the WISP market. There's Cadmium Networks. I probably said their name wrong. Cab, Cabium or Cadmium? Is it Cadmium maybe? 
I, I, I always think Cadbury. I always say it wrong. If you Google it, Google will fix it for you because I, I spell it wrong all the time. And Google still lands me on their site. They sell a lot of Wisp equipment, and so does Unify. Unify actually has. Um, I don't know if they're still offering it. One time they were even offering some financing and funding to buy equipment from them to start a Wisp. They even have the whole billing system, and I believe Cadmium has this too, where the billing system gets integrated into your Wisp equipment, so you can. Uh, properly charged. So that's kind of where you start on it, where you land. Once you start pricing out what it costs for a tower and things like that, you're like, oh, because we worked with a local municipality and the tower cost was quite expensive because it's something they're considering doing because they they have Comcast says there's not enough density to provide internet there. People don't want to buy houses where they can't have a uh, high speed internet and there's not another option. So the city's thinking about putting it in. The city mm -hmm. got to the phase where they called, how much is it to put a tower up? Oh, that's kind of a lot. <laughs> and it's just all the little things you have to consider in there. So you have the equipment fee, how you're going to build your fee structure, how you're going to recoup the cost of putting a tower up. And then you have to do a lot of site planning. Now, the cool thing is Unify actually has on their site some of the site planning tools. Um, this area they're at is relatively flat, which means really tall tower. Where my dad is at has a lot of hills. So they were lucky and they were able to get the backhaul wired to a tower that's also on a hill. Downside is there's a ridge and it cuts off half their customers. So what hill you choose can be very difficult. So there's actually a lot of stuff that goes into the planning of building right. that WISP. A lot of tools are out there and there's a few people who have done really small versions of it. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember, I think it was someone on YouTube, but if you type in WISP, you find it. There's a few small time people that said, hey, I got this small area yep. of, I know all the neighbors and I want to provide it. I mean, that can be a simple thing where you just share the bill and maybe you're kind of a wisp, but be careful. Read the terms and conditions of your provider. Make sure they don't stop you from doing that or you can get in trouble for doing that type thing. I mean, I, I don't know the yeah. legalities of your area. You'll have to look. But Unify and Cadmium are your two hardware starting points. And that's more of the consulting we've done with people is like, you know, the network engineering side, the pricing and billing side. I'm sure there's a lot of guides out there. I don't know them, but there is an event annually I will mention called Wispapalooza. And it's a big event for people who wow. are where all the WISP people come together to uh, discuss ideas and things like that. I, I've never been. I just know a few people that have gone and asked me if I would come there because I talk a lot about the site to site equipment and we use some of the site to site equipment. Uh, we just aren't a WISP or get directly involved in anything more than the network engineering side of it. So, yeah, I would say, could it be profitable? Maybe, um, but also keep in mind that the backend providers really don't care if you're profiting or not. Um, and, and like you said, some of them may not even want you to do it in the first place. Just give you the, an example, like my internet bill here in this studio is 250 a month right now. And I got notification and I'm trying to fight this that Comcast decided that I should be paying 600 a month for mine. And that's what they're going to try to force me into. So if I could reshare my internet connection, and if I was doing that, then it's going to become a lot less profitable when that bigger bill comes. So there's also that. But I think I did read or, or hear on, wasn't it Security Now, that one of the people that writes in every now and then has a uh, wisp going on? I thought it was that show, but I could be it, wrong. It, uh, I don't recall exactly. Not, I don't remember that being mentioned. I think I I think there was a few episodes, so I, I don't know if you maybe search for that because I think I remember that person having a video and some information about how they do it, and that might actually be helpful. So if you have some kind of a price guarantee from the backend provider, and um, you know th they have in their terms and conditions that they don't mind you sharing that, then um, you might be able to pull that off. And depending on your infrastructure, like your land or whatever, that could um, help. Um, or, or actually hinder you depending, right? Yeah. Um, take all that into consideration and see who else has done it because um, I'm sure, and I've, I've seen this before, like I've, I've never seen a WISP provider that was secretive, right? Usually someone is like, well, I figured it out. You figured it out. You figure it out. I'm not going to tell you because that's my advantage. I haven't heard a single WISP person like that. They're like, yeah, you want to stick it to the big people? I'll tell you exactly how to set up yes. a WISP in your area. And they'll just give you all the information that you could ever want. And I and they won't hold back. So if you want information, uh, they'll you give it to you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You'd be shocked. I mean, really, with all the people there I've I've talked to, even at, like where my, um, where my dad is serviced, they're all super... Uh, nice people. Matter of fact, we negotiated and 
um, we were able to get my dad a discount by putting a tower on his property because his property is a relay point because he's at a high point to a bunch of other people in another area that are down and they don't they can't get access to the main tower. So my dad's actually a relay point for a few other people and everyone where my dad is at. So it's picture rural Michigan. Everyone's at least six acres apart from each other. So oh, it goes, it, it's it's when we say neighborhood up there, it's not like the suburban neighborhoods we have in the uh, Detroit area that I'm at now. It's a very spread apart. So WISP is the only way it's impractical to even consider running, you know, some type of lines out to all these houses. So yeah. And the, all the people I meet in the WISP industry have always been really cool. And most of the time they're nerds like us who started going, how do we get better internet? And, and it turns and goes crazy. So <laughs> Too bad you can't have like a small little broadcaster that you just hook up to a drone and just send the drone up and have like other drones that like trade places when the battery from one gets low, the other one goes up and it switches to that one. And then you don't have to have a tower at all. Yeah, I don't know. There's probably some crazy creative way to do that, although I doubt the equipment is light enough to be carried by a drone. But, you know, and, and also uh, with things like Starlink coming out, you're going to see more connectivity in, in those rural areas uh, that has a lower startup cost. Uh, Starlink is you know, not going to be great latency for gaming, but it's not bad for people who just, you know, better than no internet. So Starlink is, uh, you know, becoming a lot more popular. And I think it's going to create a lot of competition and fill in a few more gaps in areas. Um, so that's something to consider like the long-term viability of the WISP in the area. If there's already one WISP, do you want to try to compete with that WISP? Because then the next competitor entering that space could be Starlink. As I said, it, the latency issues are going to cause other things for that, right. you know, WISP will have advantage over, um, that, but it's just all the things and factors to consider it. I would say if you are an individual that has solved these problems and this is what you do and you have creative solutions, please write us, please yeah, send us a message. And we'd love to hear how you did this and uh, how you solved this problem. I think that'd be fascinating to find out how people have, have um, actually achieved this. And especially it'd be great if they achieved it with a very low budget, because that'd be even more awesome. Yeah. Um, someone did ask in a stream, did, did the Google blimp thing? I don't know whatever happened. Uh, it had, it was, it was Google had a series of like hot air balloons or something or not hot air balloons, but blimps. Um, Cause they weren't just full hot air. I think they were like helium field uh, that would float around and provide service. I don't know what happened to that. Uh, you can Google it. It's, it's outside of. Um, yeah. I would say that it makes sense though, because a lot of the decisions that Google makes were made by people full of hot air. So why not have oh. hot air balloons too? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. It's and it's also the joke about will, will any project with Google survive any length of time? Who knows? That's not a question we always have an answer to. Well, we still have <laughs> Gmail, so that's something. Um, should we talk about the DDNS service options? Um, we could, but I don't have much to say I about did, that yet. It's a little bit more of a correction, I should say. Yeah. So me and Jay brought up and we had talked about owning your domain and we did a, one of the podcast episodes about that. But one of the things that people said, well, hey, Hover doesn't have DDNS. And that's true. The, the detachment is the DDNS service does not have to be per, attached to who you bought the domain from. Right. So there are plenty of dynamic DNS ones. This person specifically is talking about using PFSense and their dynamic DNS. Now, the good news is there's a very long list of a huge number of providers of dynamic DNS. Dynamic DNS is separate than the domain. So, yes, we know that Hover doesn't support it, but there are a lot of them out there. Now, the next question is, which one's a good one? I don't really know because my IP address doesn't change that much even at home. Now, we have statics at my business, but even at my house, I do have DNS registered and I just update it if my IP address changes, but it's so rare. Um, right. So I don't know or have any preference for one particular service. I've run into people using a variety of services. I don't know the name of all of them, but pretty much the ones in the PF sense list, try each one. Many of them have a free tier. You can try and move up to sometimes like a few dollars a month. So in the unpaid versus the paid tiers are often more related to whether or not they allow you to do your domain, how they handle the DNS for it, or how many requests. They have different, you know, different pricing. It's not usually a free service, but it's a very low cost service. And then right. you create the, you go over to where you're hosted and either A, sometimes they have an option, maybe you change your DNS servers, or B, uh, creating a C name 
to match the uh, dynamic DNS name you have assigned. So that way your domain name or any sub extensions thereof, subdomains um, are all tied to your IP address. And if your IP address changes, it will change with it. So there's definitely options out there uh, to do it. And mm -hmm. I know, you know, because you can do DNS in Linode, does, does Linode offer any type of dynamic DNS? I know they offer DNS via uh, an API. So um, you can do I don't rules. know. Um, I never looked at it because my solution, I don't use this anymore because I have a static IP. So I'm, I'm out of the market for this kind of thing officially. But I know the majority of our listeners don't have a static IP because that's just like the, the added. I guess that's my benefit with paying yeah. $250 a month for my internet. <laughs> but um, this, what I would say is, is that the C name idea you have is absolutely the way to go because you don't care what your DNS name is at that point. So I used to use, and I think they still exist, DNS-O-Matic was mine, and I could have several different services in there, which is what I really loved about it. It wasn't just one. And then when you have that long DNS name that's going to be, I don't know, some number of characters, dot something, dot something, it's not something that you can remember. You take that into your DNS provider. So if you bought a domain from Hover, for example, you create a C name and you drop that in there, you know, home.yourdomain.com is a C name to that other dynamic DNS service. So for example, I had like vpn.mydomain.com at one point, and that was just a C name to that dynamic DNS provider. And that was, that was all I needed to do. So I don't really feel like it, I mean, it'd be great if you use it through PFSense and it works, but I would just use DNS-O-Matic and then just tie that to a C name with, with your domain. And then at that point, you don't even care if your DNS provider has uh, dynamic DNS or not. You know what, Jay? I feel like we need to do an episode on DNS and C names and that. I could have sworn we have. Now I have to look through the... Sometimes we've recorded at this yeah, point. It's always, but you know, we all know the joke. It's always DNS. But the reason yeah. it's always DNS, I say, is because a lot of people misunderstand DNS. They, they have a hard time understanding some of the fundamentals of it. So, yes, there's a... Uh, Oh, actually, someone just commented, Linode is listed in PFSense as a dynamic DNS option. So I did not, this is a commenter I see in the live stream here. So thank you very much for that. I, um, I don't have PFSense pulled up to validate if it works, but uh, cool that it's on there. So that's actually um, something that might be worth playing with. And yeah, we can always, I, I think we did one on domains, but we'll, we'll dig through. This will be some show topic ideas uh, as well. We love we love hearing from all of you. That's where all these questions drive us to the things. We want to make sure we're teaching the class everything, everything we know. And then we always learn from you of what, what you know, what are some other things you want us to cover? Right. All right. And I haven't used DNS-O-Matic in years, but I am on my laptop right now. I looked it up while we're talking. It does exist uh, still. I mean, I, okay. I, I, I assume it's every bit as awesome as it was when I used to use it. But again, it's, you can have multiple services tied to it, which is great. Um, and yeah. that was like the killer feature for me. And then you just set up the C names accordingly for the different things that you want to map. And you could just remember the C names. You know, you might have vpn.yourdomain.com, um, server.yourdomain.com, whatever it is. And then you can just have uh, the names match. So just you try a C name. I think it's easier. Mm -hmm. um, on to the next question. There's actually, uh, this is... Uh, the point of a lot of confusion, this is how to handle permissions. Specifically, we're talking about like Windows file, SMB permissions within TrueNAS. Now, there's more than one way to handle it. And there used to be a third way. Now, the third way is old. So if you find old documentation about how to set up a free NAS, not a TrueNAS, a free NAS server with Active Directory as an Active Directory server, I believe that's some functionality that used to be in and Later, they got rid of it. It was never great. It's not like they uh, were getting rid of features. They were getting rid of features that didn't work well. They did a lot of retooling over the years, and it has a tie-in now in the current version 12 of FreeNAS or, uh, well, sorry, TrueNAS, version 12 TrueNAS Core or the more recent release Scale. They both have Active Directory plugins. I've, scale was released yesterday. I haven't dove into it, but so we'll focus on doing this in TrueNAS Core. It should really work the same in Scale. If you have an Active Directory server separate and you want to tie your TrueNAS to it, yes, you can. It will tie to it. And then the Active Directory server will let you know where the users and permissions are. And then you can set those users and permissions on different Samba shares. But what if you don't have that? What if you're someone who has a home lab and you have you and your wife and you would like to share files or 
you and anyone else on the network, really, maybe you just have the kids or friends over, whoever it is, whoever that person is you want to share, but not share everything with, you can create folders and then you can create permissions on those folders. That gets really tricky. I've got a video on how to do it. Um, but what makes it a little bit easier is the fact you can create groups and then assign mm -hmm. those groups into the permissions. The downside is there's not, there's not a lot of, um, amazing documentation on how to do this other than the video I made for it. They have some good write-ups uh, to get you started, but you basically create two users and you can create a group. Maybe we'll call that group uh, the photos. And we want to have a shared folder for photos or a shared Samba share for that. You can take each of those people, put them in that group, and you do that all through the interface in TrueNAS by taking person A and person B and put them into the same shared group for photos, then they can both read and write to the folders folder. But then they can also have other folders that they independently have, like my personal files for person A and my personal files for person B, and they would not have access to those. They can be on the server. So it can be done. It's a lot more rudimentary when you don't have something like an Active Directory server installed, but there is a functional way to do it. That was right. basically what I cover. I will probably do because there's been some updates and changes uh, since I did my video. You can look at it and the, the changes are minor enough that if you watch my video, even though the interface is slightly different, it's close enough to the same that you could probably figure out what those extra boxes are because, well, there's little question marks next to them to describe them. Right. So you can, you can follow my old video, but I am making some new videos now that scale is out and now that a core is at, well, really feature complete at 12.u8. And I know they're coming out with 13, but I don't think they're changing much in sharing. So I will do some updated videos soon directly related to like how permissions work and how some of that uh, functionality is, but it is possible to do. It just doesn't have its own like normal right click change permissions and set permissions on that. And there are further extended permissions you can do from the command line. So not just at the share level or the data set level, but even at the folder levels within the data set. Uh, but that's a lot of it's command line driven still. And I actually am going to dive into that so I can put how to do and how to assign permissions from the command line and set groups. It's on my to-do list to kind of make an explainer. Cause the question comes up from time to time. Right. It's also nice to be able to know how to do it from the command line is you get a very precise level of control to go in there and say, assign this user, this group to this and set all the data on there. So that'll be an upcoming one. And uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, a little deep dive into all the little permissions things. It's definitely the most common topic when people set it up is getting all the permissions right with uh, TrueNAS. <laughs> um, and I'm going to give like an alternate poor man's way of doing this because you know, I totally get it. Like directory servers are pretty cool. And if that's something that you want to learn, you should learn it, especially if you think like it's going to help you at your job. There's no better way to uh, practice than, you know, giving people shares and access to those shares and trying to centralize the passwords. That's all fun. But if you don't care, um, one poor man's way to do it. I know there's flaws. OK, I'm not going to just pretend like the solution's perfect. That's why I say the poor man's solution is when you um, when you have the different computers in your home lab or in your house, you could set up a dynamic DHCP reservation where any, where that particular machine always gets that IP address. When it gets an IP address, it, it's always that one. So you don't have to worry about somebody like, um, you know, I mean, you probably do still have to worry about spoofing if anyone in your house knows how to do that. But then in the share, you lock the share to that IP. So only that IP can get to that share. So you could have like a, you know, kid's share that has all the, the stuff that you share with the kids in there. And then their IPs are able to access it and their machines get an, a reserved IP from the DHCP server. So they're always going to get the same. And then you could do it that way. Now, obviously, there's flaws with that. If there's anyone in your house that's very good with computers, they could spoof the IP address and get into whatever share they want. But assuming that's not the case and that's all you're trying to do, that might just be the quickest way to fix it. Yeah. So there's a couple different methodologies on there that you can do to get that working. All right, what's the next question in the list? We're getting down to the bottom here. We're getting pretty close. So um, I wanted to touch on this one because someone um, wanted to, it was um, RP where the initials asked about uh, documentation. You know, that that's a, a good thing to ask about because we definitely want to document how we do things. And, you know, you could argue that automation when you write the code is documentation of it by itself, but that doesn't really always work. Because, for example, when I take notes, um, there might be a command that I use, but I don't use it all that often. 
And there's some command options that I, I don't use all that option or that often. So I'll just put them in a, in a you know document and then I can go back to it and read it. It's a lot better than the man pages, in my opinion, because I have it down to just the options that I use. But that's a real issue right now. I'm going to suggest a different way of documenting that's going to at the same time teach you how to use Git. This is very important. So the idea is that in your documentation, you don't include any private keys any passwords or anything that's potentially going to leak out or be a problem. And what you do is you write your notes in Markdown and then you commit them to GitHub. Now, when you view them in GitHub, you'll see it rendered in Markdown and it'll look great. But at the same time, you're practicing Markdown, you're practicing how to commit to a Git repository and work on a Git repository at the same time you're documenting your home lab. So by doing it that way, you're learning all like several different things at the same time in exchange for the documentation. Because I know usually when people ask this, they're like, is there a self-hosted documentation server that I should use? Yeah, absolutely. There's a bunch of them. But before we get to that, I recommend just doing it manually in Git because like I said, you're learning Markdown, you're learning how to contribute to a Git repository. And not only that, if you want to get a job someday, if you don't already have one, then someone like your hiring manager might actually look at your public Git repository. Look at this person's notes. This person has a bunch of notes on all kinds of different commands. They really do try to learn what they try to learn. And they look at this kind of thing. So there's all kinds of benefits in using Git for documentation that I think gets overlooked quite often. Yeah. And yeah. there's a lot to be said about a hiring manager noticing the fact that you did a nice job with um, documentation and having it all nice and neat. That's that's big because right. uh, it's something you notice that attention to detail. Uh, literally someone I hired a long time ago, their GitHub is part of a big part of why I hired them. I was like, Oh, look, this person's like, and you know, they do that. If they document things really well, they're probably going to do it at work too. If, if they're doing it for personal. Um, and it also goes back to the community. I love when I find someone with a nice write up on how to do something. That's one of the reasons I take the time in like the YubiKey one. I have an accompanying write up and Jay does this as well at learnlinux.tv. Mm -hmm. There's the video and there's the accompanying write up and documentation to how to do something. I go, I go with a further and me and Jay actually can both agree on this. One of our favorite ways to document things is make a video on it. <laughs> Because yeah, I could reference yeah. my own video occasionally. <laughs> I reference my own books sometimes because I forgot how I did something oh. like when I wrote it originally. But yeah, Jay goes all out. He writes an entire book on things. <laughs> and then I then I forget right after I publish it. And I'm like, how did I do that again? I have to read it and then find out. Um, obviously, if you put all your notes in Git, you'll have to censor them. Like I mentioned, you know, leave your passwords out. You shouldn't even be putting passwords in clear text anyway. We shouldn't be doing that. But also, you know, pay attention to your notes. I mean, if you have a documentation article that's called when the effing printer falls off the network because you're upset that this keeps happening <laughs> and then you commit that up to Git. I mean, that might be a little humorous, uh, to be honest, but you know, just, you know, sometimes you just have to watch what you put up there. But other than that, um, you know, as long as nothing's personally identifiable or, you know, talking about your rage against the printer, which should be a parody band name now that I think about it. Um, but anyway, sure. just, <laughs> just be careful what you put up there because that, you know, everyone's going to be able to see it. But I think that's also the benefit. Everybody sees your documentation, what you're learning. They can see like how your learning has progressed over the years. You know, you start out, you're, you're brand new. And then as the time goes, you know, you reformat the notes, you make them better, you put more commands in there. And it actually shows your growth uh, when it comes to knowledge. I think it's an awesome way to do it. Yeah, for sure. I see someone in there put PC load letter. Yeah. Yeah. I hate that message so much. Or, or my my personal favorite when the rollers on HP printers, because it happens more often, or at least it used to, when those rollers would get smooth, they'd have no tread, and then it can't really get the paper in and it gets jammed. And then you got to replace like five different rollers. Laser jet printers are fun. Said yep. no one. Said no one. <laughs> All right. Um, I'll throw at least one question I've seen uh, scroll by here. Someone had asked, and it's just something... It's beta, so I haven't tested it. TrueNAS Scale did come out yesterday in full release. Uh, we have not spent the time to learn anything about uh, Gluster. You know what I mean? It's I, I know it's cool. A lot of people are asking about how to set it up. It's not something I've dove into. It's not. You're working. You've been looking a little bit at Ceph, haven't you, Jay? I have. I'm not far enough along to speak so intelligently about it. It's one of those projects I've been kind of um, working on here and there because I do want to do a video about that. Okay, yeah, that would be a fun so, one. Yeah, we'll we'll dive into um, that type, the cluster 
Well, I, we may, maybe we'll just do a video on like Seth and there. Maybe we'll have some guests come in. Maybe I'll, I'll reach out to someone like from 45 Drives on That'd Seth. Be great. We'll just, yes. Yeah. We'll just bring in, bring in the expert. Uh, or maybe if Wendell has a few minutes, I think he does Gluster. So we, we, go. got, we got two options and this becomes two more videos. We'll do one on Gluster, one on Seth, and we'll bring in an expert because me and Jay, we have read through documentation quite a bit. We don't feel confident enough to be experts, but I'm sure. Um, and you know what? Maybe even um, I'll see. I know they're very busy with the release, but maybe we even reach out to some of the people we know over at uh, TrueNAS and see if yep. they want to come on talking specifically about scale and Gluster because they've been developing it. So why not hear from the people that developed it? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing I'd like I'd like to do more often this year is get more people, more uh, guests on this uh, podcast. It's always fun. Yeah. Um, I see someone, and thank you very much for the donation. Uh, after watching your Quad 9 video, I want to test my PFSense Plus box from Cloudflare, but for some reason, I do all the testing. DNS leak shows Cloudflare after the flush commands. So you want to switch to Quad 9. Somewhere you have, and uh, computers will hold on sometimes to DNS, rebooting the computer, like Windows uh, will do that. Linux really doesn't. Linux, when you change the resolve uh, file, I think it's pretty immediate. I don't think it caches any of it. And as far well, as now PS we have system D resolve D um, in there in the mix too. So yeah. um, we're not quite using the same files like we used to, depending on the distro, of course, you're right. doing that. But I think it also depends on what DNS service you're using. And then also there's some distributions that have DNS caching by default. So you have to look at that too, because there's um, some security that they've added to make your own laptop, if you have a desktop installation, a DNS provider oven by itself to try to negate some kind of attacks and you have system D resolve D as I mentioned. So there's a couple other things to watch out for too. Yeah. Um, when in doubt, rebooting fixes it. Cause even I, I've been aggravated with the fact that Chrome will hold on to DNS. Matter of fact, one of the things that some of the, some of the browsers have started doing is cause they'll use uh What's that new one? D, the DNS over HTTPS. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, so Firefox is doing this. I think that's what they're doing, isn't it? Yes. So what that what the problem is when they start doing things like that, they'll go around your DNS servers, and you can't just block DNS. That doesn't work. You have to modify the browser to get it work. Because if you block DNS, who cares? It goes out over port four four three. So you can't block port four. Well, you could block port four four three, but you'll have completely different problems. So if you're using a browser that's also using DNS over HTTP um, or HTTPS, now you you could end up with your browser being the problem, not anything related to your Linux system or your Windows system or your firewall at all. Um, yeah, so there's there's a lot of factors in there. Check the browser because a lot of the new browsers have started doing their own DNS. And browsers also will hold on to DNS until you forcibly close them and restart them. Uh, that sometimes is just a troubleshooting tip when you're trying to solve DNS problems. This is back to the complexities of maybe that's what we do. How to troubleshoot DNS, all the different things that can happen in DNS. <laughs> maybe we should title the episode how to survive um, TDNS DNS. or anger induced by, T by DNS because it's one of those things that when we say it's always DNS, I mean, you really have to look at how deeply we mean that. We don't mean like, oh, check DNS first and you're fine. Like check the zillion quirks and things with, with DNS. And one of those quirks buried in there is probably your problem because that's just how it is. And I feel like we're also kind of losing control too. Um, there's a good and a bad to that because, you, you know, some countries are censored um, by their government and then they, um, you know, want to get outside of that. So by bypassing DNS, you know, if there's a weak system there, they, they, they could have that or, you know, DNS over HTTPS could help um, with that as well. But then in the home lab, that takes some control away because now your browser thinks that it knows more about your DNS entries than you do. So when you try to go to a local web server, I can't find that page. Yeah, because you're not looking at the LAN, you're looking at, you know, the upstream DNS provider. Of course, you're not going to find it. And then you have to try to find a way to bypass it. It just becomes so frustrating to deal with. Like we like the benefits that we get from all these extra DNS features, but then there's an expense to that. And at some point, it's like we have these, you know, like OpenDNS that uses DNS to help, um, you know, make sure your young ones aren't getting into trouble online. But um, eventually that's going to be even harder to do and at some point worthless. So DNS is my, you know, it's, it's one of my favorite things about networking and one of my most hated things about networking at the same time. Yeah. So it's... <sighs> 
It's fun. <laughs> and I see people already talking about trying to block DOH. It can be done. I've also seen where the browsers, if they fail DOH, are supposed to use local DNS. There was at least one update of uh, Chrome that didn't do it. It just started breaking things. We know because from the business side where we manage DNS for clients, we're using different filtering tools and web filtering. And it creates, there's so many factors that create problems with it. Um, it's a moving target. That's that's for sure. It, it, it is right. like, oh, just throw this group policy or put this particular setting. And then all of a sudden uh, an update decides it's not going to obey the settings that you did. And it, it's uh, actually, you know, you're pushing right. out a bunch more settings and things like that. That's, you know, why we work in computers. So... I think of all the things that we've ever invented, like the internet is the most unique in more ways than one. But what I'm saying is though, that you have a situation where normally when we invent something, we adapt that something to our needs. But I find that more and more we're adapting what we do to the internet. So we've created the internet and you know we're not like in control of it anymore. We're adapting to it now as if it's its own thing, right? So all these DNS issues and um, all these um, antiquated technologies that we're trying to adapt to, and then everything is just going in its natural direction. I love you know security and encryption, obviously. I think that's a great thing and privacy is great too. So that's the way it's gonna go. It doesn't matter if you don't like it, that's the way it's going. And as a result of that, DNS is gonna follow, everything else is gonna follow. It's like you know, we, the technology people are chasing the internet to adapt to it and catch up with it rather than have control of it to adapt it to our needs, because that's just the way it goes. It's just kind of funny to me how this has worked out. It's like the invention that's a snowball that's rolling down a hill and just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it takes over the whole town. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. But hey, that's the end of the questions there. So uh, yep. very very grateful for all of you that send in the questions. We love doing this Q and a episode. Um, they come and go. We do. So we have, we have more topics for our dev random. We were going to do if we didn't have enough uh, questions, but we had enough questions. Yep. We do want to do another dev random because, uh, or maybe I'll just do a video on proxy pivoting or something like that. I've got a proxy chains video, but me and Jay were talking about this and a few other topics. So, uh, but we, we do like suggestions from the audience. So if there's uh, different topics you want to mm -hmm. cover, different things you want us to dive into, maybe even revisit topics because the reality is these projects aren't static. We covered them at a point in time and yep. we may say a feature didn't exist. Well, it's now the future and these products as they progress sometimes have more features and more things in them. So I think there's going to be more, more to talk about. Maybe we'll even be revisiting some of the projects just talk about the updates and changes on there. So overall yeah. we're, we're excited and we love hearing from all of you because uh, that's what drives a lot of this and gets us excited, yeah. you know, answering the questions and teaching more people about this. And sometimes I, when, um, you know, someone asks the question, we answer it. And then, you know, off camera, I'm like, wait a minute, that, that's a good, that's a good thing that they brought up. Maybe I should change the way that I do things too. And then sometimes my own home lab benefits from some of the things that people bring up. It's just so much fun. Yep. All right. Well, thanks again, everyone. And see you in the next show. See you later.